My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading this morning comes from the fourth chapter of Romans, where Paul writes, For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Here ends the reading. Our second reading comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the eighth chapter. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Up top, a couple of questions for you. How far back does your faith go? 
Like, how far back in history can you trace your religion and your beliefs? And then second, because it could be quite a ways, what has changed since? Have the rules changed? Has the faith changed? Has the world changed? Those are the sort of questions we could answer quickly and simplistically, right? I'm a Christian, so Jesus Christ, I trace it back to Jesus, and the world's changed, but the truth hasn't, something like that. But really, we can go deeper. Those are some of those, well, it depends what you mean kind of questions. (laughs) For example, I'm struck whenever we have a reading like this from Romans because of just how Lutheran it sounds. Like it fits our tradition, what's particular to Lutheranism, so well. Now, Paul wasn't a Lutheran, of course, and other traditions read Romans, and others even lean heavily on it like we do, Calvinists, for example. But for Martin Luther, this was the gospel in its purest form. The gospel, according to Paul. Luther wrote in his commentary on Romans that we Christians should read it every day and memorize it. I mean, it was the book of the Bible that most explicitly stated your salvation and that you can know you are saved, as far as he was concerned. Now, Luther was probably projecting a little bit. That's certainly how he felt, because he had some self-doubt, let's say a lot, a lot of anxiety over the state of his soul, his salvation. He would agonize that between confessing to the priest and going to communion, that he might sin along the way and cause trouble for himself. Or worse yet, what happens if he forgets to confess one particular sin and never confesses it at all? It should come as no surprise then for someone like that, with that kind of anxiety, that the assurance of salvation by faith through grace on account of Christ is the utmost good news. Because whether he failed to confess a particular sin or stumbled along the way wasn't enough to jeopardize him in any way because his salvation simply doesn't depend on anything like that. It doesn't depend on him at all. There's this intuitive sense nagging at the back of his mind. It's worked its way into some religions that like, when we die, we list our good deeds against our bad deeds and see how we turned out. But that's simply not how it works. Grace through faith means the bad deeds are erased. So it doesn't work like that for us. So you might answer, how far back does your faith go to Martin Luther? If for you too, this is the height of the gospel and that kind of messaging, that way of interpreting what has happened really appeals to you too. But if we're going to do that, we might as well just say that it goes back to Paul for articulating it as such. But then again, Jesus made that possible. So maybe we still go back to Jesus like in the simple answer. Again, it kind of means, kind of depends what you mean. Let's stick with Romans for a few minutes here. Paul firmly has one foot in Hellenist culture, the Greek and Roman Empire, but also in another in Jewish culture. And he argues both in Romans, that's why it's called his Summa, it's like a large collection of all his thoughts, theologies, arguments. But today, he's appealing to the more Jewish of his audience by citing Abraham. Even though he's the father of us all, he's important to the Jewish people. Because after all, Abraham sort of started this distinctly Jewish culture and practices with this encounter from God, these encounters he had with God. Abraham was promised a son and many descendants, many descendants that he would never see. Now hang with that for a moment. I know I just kind of recapped who Paul is to Abraham, and I don't want to brush past this bit, because you've heard it in Sunday school. You've heard it a hundred times in church. This promise that Abraham heard and believed, it was one where he would never see if it came true. 
Both Abraham and Sarah are over 90, and they're told they'll have children, which is wild enough. But then the promise beyond that is, again, it's something they'll never see, great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. And that's utter absurdity, right? To really hang your hat on something you can never get the proof. You can never know for sure in this life. I mean, what else rises to that level of hard to believe? What if I told you I could turn water to wine? Or if people could be raised from the dead? On the face of it, knowing only what we see on earth, that sounds awfully absurd. But Abraham had the wits about him to distinguish the voice of God and to know whether such a message could be trusted, based not on what he had seen, but based on where the message came from. Despite the apparent absurdity, he believed it, and that was accounted to him as righteousness. He believed that there was more than meets the eye in this world, and God can make incredible, otherwise unbelievable things happen. Now, you might call that a leap of faith, but really it's just faith. And that was enough to put him in right alignment with God to make his life as a whole consistent with what he was made for and what he was called to do. Put it another way, God sees that faith and doesn't wait for Abraham to follow through on his commitments to see who Abraham really was. He doesn't wait to measure the scales, right? The faith was enough to make it clear who Abraham is. Back to those questions up top. Depending on what you mean, you could say, Your faith goes back to Abraham, based on this argument from Paul. But that raises the second question and makes it a little bit more interesting. Since Jesus comes after Abraham and before us, what has changed since Abraham? And that should not be an easy one to answer. I mean, this is the sort of question they use to grill seminarians on their way to becoming pastors to hold their feet to the fire. Stuff like, why did Jesus have to become incarnate, to die, to rise? Because after all, Jesus forgives sin without dying, right? And God forgives sin before Jesus is incarnate. What changed the circumstances of the world? What changed in our circumstances? If according to Paul, this justified by faith stuff goes all the way back to Abraham. Well, I can't give you a big enough answer in the few minutes I have left, but I will give you really two ideas. The first is that, in a way, nothing changed. There's this modern American invention called dispensationalism that allows for, insists that the rules change over time as God brings us into new eras, but that's flimsy at best. I mean, the fact is God doesn't change. However, when talking about the crucifixion and resurrection, Paul will use expressions like the fullness of time. That doesn't mean sooner or later or just the right time. It means all of time was affected. The salvific work of Christ transcends time and space. It stretches forward to us, sure, but it also stretches backward. The reality of Christ defines creation. The Gospel of John makes that clear. The word is there right from the start. And... Christ defines the end. Revelation makes that clear too. The grace of God afforded to us in Christ does not have a start or an end date. But nevertheless, the crucifixion and resurrection happened in history, so we should take that seriously. There may well be something to that date. And again, Christians and others have spent lifetimes over the past 2,000 years answering this question, but I'm just going to give you one more thought. Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness when he had this very personal call from God. 
He heard the voice and recognized it. He heard the promise and believed it. Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's a public, world-altering sort of event made known to the whole world. We're going to call the sum of them the Christ event. And you've heard about it. You know about it. The Christ event is your call. It's your opportunity to trust that God can do such big things as to defy all expectations. It's the voice of God that prompts you to have faith, to believe, and to be found righteous before God. The Christ event is the thing we each can look at and be prompted, like Abraham, like the great figures of old, not because we deserve it, not because we're going to do these big world-altering changes. We can't all be fathers of many nations like those great figures, but because God loved us even though we were still sinners and saves us even though we don't deserve it. So how far back can you trace your faith? All the way to the beginning and then some. What's changed since then? In Christ, God made the call to the whole world. Hear the word, trust it, believe it, and be saved. Be reckoned as righteous. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.